1: got to keep my eyes on you. Lord, I do need. Lord, I do need. Lord, I do need you. Every moment of every minute of every hour of every day. Every moment of every minute of every hour of every day. Every moment. Every minute of every hour of every day Lord, I do need Lord, I do need Lord, I do need you hey, hey. When I hear my blessed your Words that matter most Well done, good and faithful servant And with his strength I know that I will hear those words Lord with you I know I can blow the mountains Walk upon the raging seas of my life Lord with you I know Marching on a victory, but I got to keep my eyes on You, Lord I do need, Lord I do need, Lord I do. I do need Lord, I do need you. All right, uh, good morning again. And if you could turn your Bibles to
0: Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'll be right back. Let me hang up my guitar. I'm back and uh, if you haven't turned there already please go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 just lining myself up with the uh, with my camera here and um, oh, i went a little further than I did before okay uh, so Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is where you should be we're gonna wrap up our study today of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 and by noting that access to the presence of the Father in relation to the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit so that is what we'll be looking at here today wrapping up our study of Ephesians 2 18 uh, we're almost done with the chapter two, so we're we're, we're rolling along today. Would be the 122nd hour in Ephesians, and also uh, just remember today we'll as the first as we always do the first Saturday of each month we're going to study. I'll do the Lord's Supper at the end of our lesson here today, and uh, and also just for I'd like to do a little, some announcements for people who are always popping in, especially on Saturdays. Uh, we uh, have new visitors all the time uh, through our various podcasts and uh, websites and, and, and media platforms that we have. So uh, f- for basically for those p- new people to the ministry, um, my name is Bill Wenstrom. i a pastor ordained in 1998. Um, originally from Massachusetts, had two church plants in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa area, and I was in the New England area from 2019 to 22. And then Uh, maintaining Winston Bible Ministries uh, during the whole time when I was in Massachusetts, although it was primarily online because of the COVID thing hit. And so I wasn't able to get uh, a group of people together, although I was actually in the planning stages of getting together home Bible studies and then the COVID thing hit. So uh, I came out here to Huntsville, Alabama. I was offered the the pastorate here to take over Pastor Buddy Peake here at Doctrinal Bible Church in Huntsville, Alabama back in 2022. So I had my uh, first class taught there, which is right half mile down the road, on uh, July tenth of uh, two thousand twenty-two. So, um, so we uh, for for Western Bible Ministries, our class schedule is Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays at eleven a.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, I'm located Western Bible Ministries is uh, our mailing address is located at six zero three O'Shaughnessy Avenue, Northeast Huntsville, Alabama three five eight zero one. If you if you go to Google me, you'll see it. Uh, Wenchman dot org is our main website. We have over seventeen hundred written articles there in PDF format related to our various exhausted detail, ex- exegesis and exposition of the different books we've done over the last 25, 30 years, whatever it is now. And also uh, different doctrines of the Christian faith and, uh, and also uh, different, uh, Greek word studies, prep school materials. We also, I also write my own Christian music that's up on our website. And also we have a YouTube page, which, uh, we've been on since 2011, uh, under Bill Wenstrom and, um, so I have playlists for all the different subjects and books we've done in the, in the past and also um, the different collection of songs that I've, I've written over the years. And so that's on our uh, YouTube page as well. And also uh, we use streaming video by YouTube. I started using that back uh, when I moved to Massachusetts, back to Massachusetts in 2019, June of, uh, August of 2019 is when I started up classes again back then. And uh, also... Um, uh, at Doctrinal Bible Church, which we're located over there at 1215 Russell Street, Northeast, as I said before, we're a half mile down the road, um, half mile down the road, I can walk there. And got a beautiful church building, and even better, we have a great congregation there that uh, hungry for the word of God. So uh, they were into Pastor Peak for a long time, for, for probably 40 years, I think. But um, so they um, asked me to take over, and, uh, and, and I started up in Ju- July of 2022, as I said before. And we teach on Wednesday evenings at 6:30 p.m. And also on Sunday mornings we have two sessions uh, with a break in between. We start at 9.30. we We're usually out of there by um, uh, noontime. And uh, also we observe the Lord's Supper over there uh, if you're in the area at uh, on Sunday first Sundays of each Sunday of each month, so we'd we'll be doing that tomorrow. And we actually have we're only going to do two sessions one sessions tomorrow because the second session we're going to use it for our business annual business meeting, which is taking place in the second session t- uh, tomorrow. So uh, so if you're in the air, come uh, pop by. And uh, what else, uh, we have, uh, also we have, um, uh, if you go to Google us, I have an Academia EDU website. If you uh, look, Google me, Bill Wenstrom, you'll see that uh, website. Uh, we're doing very well with that. I have almost uh, 5,000 followers since 2017. And we have, uh, uh, last time I checked, it was like 903,000 views. That's pretty cool. So, and I've been getting a great response. Uh, so, it, it really fantastic from people all around the world, not just scholars. It's, uh, it's just lay people, pastors, and scholars. So, pretty cool. I, I never expected that by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think I've said this in the past that I, I kind of put it up there saying eh, maybe somebody will read it or something. But I know our website, we get a lot of hits. Uh, like, um, like for instance, for those you remember we did Jude, that's already in the triple digits far as hits for that that particular. Um, those classes and uh, and also the written articles are in the been in the, in the triple digits for all, for hundreds in other words, for a long time. So uh, we um, org is our main website. We also have a, a Logos Sermons website. Again, you Google you can access that actually through our main website. If you click on if you want to listen to the classes at Doctrinal Bible Church, the we only we only have uh, the video so uh, audio so far, but we're going to be having videos soon. And that uh, is—you can go to our website. You'll see the link. to Listen to classes at Doctoral Bible Church. So you, it takes you right to the Logos sermons. It used to be called Faith Life sermons, and they call it now Logos sermons. So I put all my MP3, MP4s up there now since uh, August of 2019, and uh, the YouTube recordings are still on Westminster.org. And uh, the two, the MP3, MP4s are been up on our Westminster.org page up till June, June of 2019, but now I put, I put them all. They're actually all at uh, faith, uh, Logos Servant Sites anyways. And from there, we uh, have podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music. Just search for me under Winston Bible Ministries. And if you'd like to uh, give to the ministry, uh, you can give through PayPal on our main website at winstern.org go to the Donate tab. People do that and other, and other people just send a check and you can make that. It's tax-deductible. Uh, it's uh western bible ministries you make to check out too and it's at the address mailing address is 603 o'shaughnessy avenue northeast huntsville alabama 35801 and i think that's about it for the announcement so let's get right to it let's take a moment of silent prayers as our custom custom we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with god because any mental verbal or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the father son and the holy spirit but according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18, to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3, 16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do it, 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us, another week of Bible classes. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to this ministry. And thank you for the people that you've raised up that have been supporting this ministry, where they're attending the classes and watching and listening to them, and and also uh, those who serve in the ministry over the years up to this present moment, and also those who support the ministry financially. Thank you for them. And uh, I pray you would continue to provide for our financial needs here at Winston Bible Ministries. Um, I just pray, Father, you, uh, also, I thank you for this study in Ephesians, and I thank you for those who might be joining me live or a later date through the recordings on our websites and podcasts and media platforms that you've given to us. I just pray, Father, that each person person in the audience uh, would uh, be able to, by the Spirit, understand, learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught, to carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here today. So in order, in order to make personal application, I pray each person would be spoken to individually and also all of us as a corporate unit. I also pray, Father, for myself. Help me to communicate your word today. Uh, Again, with accuracy and clarity, reverence and respect and power. Help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I pray the Spirit use me mightily as his instrument so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment because your word taught that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So, Father... Uh, We also pray for the the technology and thank you for the technology, people taking advantage of it. We pray everything would function properly. I pray there would be no problems with with the streaming video by YouTube. Thank you for the service that they provide. And also there would be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio and uploading these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray you protect them all from the evil one as you've been doing and uh, use them mightily as you've been doing. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you should be at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to, as I said before, wrap up our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 by noting uh, the, this, uh, the fact that we, as church-age believers, have access to the presence of the Father. And today, we'll look at it in relation to the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. So let's, uh, as we've been doing, we'll go to uh, read from the Net Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and then, I'll read for my translation of chapter 2 and then look at verse 18 for the rest of the class. And then remember, we observe the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of uh, this lesson today as we do the first Saturday of each month. So it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the Spirit, that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus, the good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that for only you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the human body by human hands, that you are at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, so that through him We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, for those who, just briefly by a way of review for those people who are coming uh, new into the study. And as I said before, we have new people popping in all the time. Uh, This book was uh, written not uh, specifically to the Ephesian Christian community. It's actually a circular letter that uh, the intended audience was the various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia in the first century. We know this because in the earliest and best manuscripts that we have of Ephesians, uh, we see that it was, uh, we don't see the word Ephesus. And the best and oldest manuscripts that we have, it is in the manuscript tradition. Ephesus, but in verse one of chapter one, uh, in many of these oldest the old, oldest and best manuscripts that we have, they don't have that. And uh, in fact, as we point out, uh, many scholars believe. Uh, if you look at uh, end of the Colossians, that you, those of you study Colossians with me, we noted uh, Paul says to exchange letters. With the Laodiceans, because he said there was a letter he said to the Laodiceans, and he wants that letter read by the Colossians, and and the Colossians' letter to be read by the Laodiceans. Now it's interesting. A man named Martian, who was actually a heretic, he actually read what we call today Ephesians, the contents of it, but he said it was addressed to the Laodiceans. So that kind of, well, I'm a lot of believers, a lot of uh, expositors and scholars think that. Ephesians was a circular letter, uh, not intended just simply for the Ephesian Christian community, but the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia in the first century. Paul is the author of this book. Uh, he, said, he has his name uh, ident- uh, there. It's not a pseudonymous letter, as some scholars like to think, and more and more are thinking like that. It, uh, it's an error because the church has never accepted pseudonymity. Uh, we saw that uh, Ire- Irenaeus, uh, one of the early church fathers, and his work on baptism says that they, uh, the church at that time, excommunicated a pastor who was uh, posing as Paul, writing to a particular Christian community, posing as Paul because he revered Paul and wanted to increase Paul's fame. But they would have nothing of that. In fact, Paul uh, didn't accept pseudonymous writings because, if you read Second Thessalonians with those we studied who studied Second Thessalonians with me, if you recall, uh, in uh, chapter two of that book, uh, Paul said, uh, even if you get a, a letter allegedly from us saying that the day of the Lord has taken place, you're to reject it. And uh, then later in the book, at the end of the book, he says, this is my authenticating mark. Well, you put those two things together, obviously he, he did not like pseudonymous writings. He wanted it, he, he's saying, this is my, he, this is my uh, authenticating mark on my letters. Yes, he used uh, amanuensis, but uh, to, at the end of the letters, he would put his authenticating mark. And especially in the case of the Thessalonians, he wanted them to know his handwriting. Uh, he wanted them to know that so that they would not be deceived by these pseudonymous letters. And so we also saw that uh, uh, the burden of proof, there's never been anybody who can say, you know, Paul has his name, it says Paul's name there. So uh, you have to have, they don't have any evidence that people who adhere to pseudonymous uh, authorship of uh, Ephesians. They don't really have any evidence to, 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 to contradict that this was Paul. In fact, for 2,000 years, it wasn't too modern times and modern scholarship, and especially in America and Western Europe, where they questioned the authenticity of Ephesians. The church for centuries has always recognized Ephesians as being a Pauline letter. And also we saw that Paul was writing this between 60 and 62 AD. And this was during his first Roman imprisonment, which he was eventually released from. And from during that imprisonment, he wrote Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, and Ephesians. What we know as Ephesians. And so, uh, what's interesting? I believe both Colossians and Philemon went out together, and this book as well, because the same man uh, that uh, brought Colossians and uh, Philemon to Colossae and to Philemon uh, took this book too. So they were right down. Uh, they were in that area. So I'm sure Tychicus uh, took this uh, uh, letter to uh, along with him as well. So he had a lot of a lot of. Uh, uh, great literature and tremendous uh, books there that would have been invaluable to the church over the centuries, and he was carrying all of them. And what a job that was. And uh, also, uh, we see the purpose of this letter is to maintain unity experientially between the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities, where the Gentile Christian community is the, uh, as we saw in Ephesians 2.11, they're actually he's writing to, primarily. And so he wanted to maintain unity uh, between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. And uh, so he wanted, he didn't want, uh, uh, the, because of the uh, the culture shock of being inter- inter- interacting with each other, uh, remember, Jews would have nothing to do with going into a Gentile's house because of the dietary regulations that they had, and also, in many cases, they, they thought they would never stoop to go have dinner with a Gentile, and uh, because of are arrogance, and so we see that uh, paul was very concerned that in the christian community that the unity between the jewish and gentile christian mini- uh, ministries uh, minist- uh, communities would be maintained through the practice of the command to love one another as we can t- we can infer that from the ch- first chapter uh, fourth chapter the beginning of the application a- uh, aspect of this book of the three first three chapters and also Ephesians 2:11 through 22 which paul talks about the gentiles being brought near uh, to god through their faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and the baptism of the Spirit brought near to the Jewish Christian community, uh, who was in a covenant relationship with God anyways, uh, the Jews were, and the Gentiles were never in a, in a covenant relationship with God. So us Gentile Christians, as we've been studying, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we're not only united with Jesus Christ at our justification through the baptism of the Spirit, Uh, but identified with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, sessions right here in the Father. But we were also united with the Jewish Christian community at that time. And uh, we were the wild olive uh, branch, us Gentiles, mentioned in Romans chapter 11, as we referred to. And the olive tree is regenerate Israel. Those branches on the olive tree are regenerate Jews. Those off the olive tree are unregenerate Jews. And us, we were engrafted, Paul says, contrary to nature, emphasizing the supernatural nature of this union, between Jewish and Gentile Christians, as we'll also see when we get to Chapter Three, which I, in, the, in the autobiographical section of the first uh, of Chapter Three, where he, before he does his second intercessory, first intercessory prayer, second intercess, intercessory prayer of the letter, uh, what's interesting we see in Chapter Three, Paul says that he um, he the, the he was the steward of uh and a servant of the gospel, and for the benefit of the Gentiles, the Gentile Christian community and he, he communicated a mystery doctrine that was not known to Old Testament saints. That's why it was called a mystery, namely that Jew, Gentile believers during the church age are now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish, Christian, uh, Jewish church age believers because of their faith in Jesus at justification and their union identification with him through the baptism in the Spirit at their justification. So that you know that's why, as I've been pointing out in the first two chapters thus far, when Paul you see prep, uh, prepositional phrases in the English translation says in the beloved in chapter one in him, or in Christ or in Christ Jesus, that uh, is pri- is shorthand for the believer's faith in Jesus at justification and their union identification with him. It has that that prep- those prepositional phrases which are usually in a use uh, have a causal idea or sometimes they express means, depending on the context, uh, they contain the figure of metonymy, meaning the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, which also, again, took place at his, at our justification. So what's interesting, Paul says in chapter three that uh, through the church, this particular uh, phenomenon that's never happened in history until the church age, where Jewish and Gentile Christians are on, uh, Jewish and Gentile believers are on equal footing with each other, okay? That is being made known to Satan and the members of his kingdom at this time through the church. What is it telling them? Well, Paul says in this chapter, chapter 2, 11 through 22, that we're the new humanity, which is actually going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels. How is that? Well, if you recall, as we've been pointing out in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said that Adam and Eve were to rule over the works of his hands and their progeny. Well, the fall of Satan, the fall of uh, Adam and Eve, uh, looks like, uh, according to what Paul says about Satan and John says about him and and, uh, and the Lord uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, is that Satan is now the god of this world. He temporarily usurped the authority of Adam and Eve in the garden with the fall. And so that's why he's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The whole world is under his power, 1 John 5.19. He deceives the entire world, and he offered up the kingdoms of this world to Jesus in his temptation. And of course, Jesus emphatically rebuked him with the word of God. Uh, And that wouldn't have been a legitimate temptation of Jesus if he didn't, in fact, have that kind of authority over the nations. And so uh, Satan and his kingdom are going to be dispossessed by... Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ, as we'll see in Ephesians 5. And that was a mystery not known to Old Testament saints. And so now through the church, it's being made known that we're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels. And that'll be at the second advent of Christ when Jesus comes back to defeat Antichrist, the false prophet, the tribulation armies, and imprison and deliver Israel from those things, those people, and also... He will uh incarcerate Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians six: three, don't you know you're going to judge angels? So Satan and his kingdom are not really happy with the church and uh, because we're going to dispossess them. So that's why the church, at this particular time, and I know he has an eye, he does have an eye on Israel, of course, but the church is primarily his uh, his target because as we know that from Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. And actually, uh, what's interesting as well, those who studied Second Thessalonians with me, and I've been t- developing this in our Day of the Lord series at DBC, is that the church has to be removed in order for the Antichrist to be manifested and then make that treaty with Israel, which starts the 70th week. We know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 2. And remember the restrainer is the, omnip- is the Holy Spirit in his omnipotence, which is who indwells the, each member of the church. So when the rapture takes place, it says that he will be removed at that time. And then Antichrist can manifest himself, and then he can make that treaty with Israel, and then the 70th week can begin, which ends with the second advent of Christ, when Christ starts the kingdom on the earth with us, the church, his bride, and elect angels, Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, and tribulational martyrs. So it's this fascinating study that we're involved in here. So let's look at my translation of chapter two. It says, now correspondingly, even though... Each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions. In other words, because of your sins. Each one of you uh, who who formerly lived by means of these, in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who were objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So we see there in that passage is the three great enemies of the human race and the church of course, uh, the old Adamic sin nature, which is in the genetic structure of our physical body and also Satan and his cosmic world system. And then Paul mentions, describes that pre-controversion, pre-justification state of these Gentile Christians and uh, in order to accentuate the love and grace and mercy of God. So it says in verse 4, But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of His great love, with which He loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, He caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit saved because of grace. Now He's going to teach us how he, we're uh, made alive together with Christ. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him, our identification with Christ in his resurrection. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies, our identification with Christ in his session at the right hand of the Father. How did he do this? What was the reason why? Because of our faith in and, and union identification with Christ Jesus. Verse 7, he did this so that he could display for his own glory, during the ages which is certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in, and union and identification with Christ Jesus. So again, as you saw in verse 6, you see it in verse 7, because of our faith in, and union identification with Christ Jesus, I my translation is much more explanatory and wordy than the modern translations, because I'm being more interpretive deliberately to help my Readers or, or listeners or what, uh, people, viewers, and uh, because I'm in their interpreter, so it's shorthand. Paul in those prepositional phrases like in Christ Jesus, uh, it's talking about it's shorthand. It's talking about our it, the person of Christ is put for our faith in Him at just, justification and our union and identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. So then it says in verse eight, each and every one of you is a corporate unit, are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us, our creative workmanship, for each and every one of us, has been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance, so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, verse 11, that therefore is telling, cueing us in, that what he's going to say now is a inference, is an inference from the first 10 verses. Therefore, each and every one of you Gentile Christians, as a corporate unit, must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who received the designation circumcision, the Jews, with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, the Messianic promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God and the in the uh, sphere of the cosmic world system. So, like verses 1 through 3, verse 12 is describing the pre-justification, pre-conversion, unregenerate state of the recipients of this letter, which is true of us of us all church, all of us church-age believers. And But this time it's in relation not to God, and uh, our, our lack of a relationship with God, but in our lack of relationship with God's covenant people, Israel, uh, in particular the remnant of Israel that's the believing remnant. So, verse 13, it says, however, because of your faith in and your identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you is a corporate unit who formerly were far away have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is that which caused the hostility, and that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. Verse 15, in other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law, Composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity. Now, this time, instead of being a causal idea, we have the of this preposition, these prepositional phrases, which have Jesus as his referent. We, he now is going to give us the means, of the, of the, the means by which God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, created this new humanity by means of faith in Himself, at justification and unification with Himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Thus he caused peace to be established. And that's between, between the two races with each other and the two races with God. So it's a double reconciliation. In other words, that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God, to his cross. So he's presenting to us in verses 11 through 22, a double reconciliation, a reconciliation between the Gentiles and the Jews and a reconciliation of both races with God. Then it says, consequently, He put to death the hostility between the two and the two with God by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself, again through the baptism of the Spirit. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely, those who were far off, likewise peace to those who were near. Consequently, through the personal, intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us in the Christian community, Jew and Gentile, Namely, both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built on the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you, without exception, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So, as we pointed out in our last two classes in Ephesians 2.18, the word access there, uh, "prosagoge," prosa, prosa it appears only in this verse and two other places in the Greek New Testament, Romans 5.2 and Ephesians 3.12. Ephesians 3.12 will be studying in the not-too-distant future. I actually just finished off that verse a few days ago. And we're also going to take a look at, uh, Romans 5, 2, which we actually studied in great detail uh, many years ago. So this word, prosagoge it means to lead someone into the presence of another. And that is with an assistance of another and with the implication that the person doing the receiving is of a higher status. And in each instance, here, it denotes access to the presence of the Father. And in these passages, these these three passages, this word access, prosagoge is used in relation to God the Father. Thus, this word denotes the sinner being led into the presence of the Father through the intermediate agency of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning, in other words, based upon the merits of the object of our faith at justification, Jesus, and the merits of our union and identification with Him, and and it's done so that we might experience an eternal relationship and fellowship with the Father. Now, this word also indicates that because Jewish and Gentile church-age believers have permanent access to his presence in the sense that they always possess an eternal relationship with the Father. And as we pointed out in our last class, and I gave you uh, some application for it, this word, access, prosegogae, it indicates the continuing availability of this access to the presence of the Father. In other words, it indicates the continuing availability of approaching the Father for fellowship. So, uh, God will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, You have access to talk to somebody anytime you want. That's the Father. And uh, because of this access, 24-7. So whatever you're going to do, he's, he's available. He always has lens and ear. He can always listen to you. And you can always talk to him. And also, of course, you listen to him as he speaks through the, by the Spirit through the communication of the Word of God. So this word access, it doesn't simply mean entrance since the word access accurately reflects the meaning of this word in the Greek. Why? Because it denotes not only entrance and the presence of the Father, but also the continuing entrance. A availability of that access to the presence of the Father. And as we pointed out also in our previous class, the word Himself in this verse, the referent is Jesus Christ. It's autos, the intensive personal pronoun. And it's the object of the preposition DR, as we pointed out. And that particular preposition, as we pointed out, functions as a marker of agency. And that would indicate to us, as we also pointed out in our last class, that Jesus Christ is the personal intermediate agency through whom both Jewish and Gentile Christians experience access by means of the omnipotence of the One Spirit and of the presence of the Father. So in what sense was Jesus our intermediate agency that, that gave us access to the Father? Because if you look at my translation, verse 18 again, it says, consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. As the Net Bible says, so that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So through him is basically bringing out the idea that Jesus is our intermediate uh, intermediate agency, through whom we have access to the presence of the Father 24-7 and forever on into eternity. In what sense though? Well, this sense, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father, brought a regenerate, born-again church-age believers into the presence of the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the intermediary between a holy God and sinners. As we pointed out in our last class in a, in a passage, we studied in great detail back in Marion, Iowa, 1 Timothy two five. for there's one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself, human. Now, the church-age believer, we also pointed out, their faith in Jesus resulting in the father, declaring them justified simultaneously appropriated the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit who brought us into the presence of the father. Now the spirit did this by placing us under Jesus Christ's headship, uniting us with him and identifying us with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection and session of the right hand of the father. So therefore, As we left off in our last class, Jesus Christ is the personal intermediate agency who enables both Jewish and Gentile believers to experience access to the presence of the Father because when He declared us justified through faith in His Son, the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit appropriated for us, church-age believers, the benefits of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. Now... And we'll look at this for the rest of the class before, and, and then go into our, this, the observance of the Lord's table. Here in Ephesians 2.18, the word panuma, spirit, is referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. He's the third member of the Trinity. When I, when I say, when people say third member of the Trinity, and, uh, and they're talking about it in theological terms, but in one sense. Well, it, as those who study the Trinity with me, it's talking about the procession. Like, for instance, what I mean by that is, is that the Son proceeds from the Father. Okay? And the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, if you look at Scripture. Now, why? Because the Father, Jesus said, sent him, okay? And he is gonna send the Spirit to church-age believers uh, at at the day of Pentecost, okay? So nobody's sending the Father. So that's why he's called the first member of the Trinity, not because he's more important or he's got uh, more divine attributes than the other two. That's not the case. It's just the function between and their roles in relation to our so great salvation. So this word, Pneuma, spirit, it contains the figure of metonymy, which means that the person of the Holy Spirit is put for the exercise of His divine omnipotence at our justification. How do I know this? What's the, how, do we, how can I support this interpretation? Well, it's indicated by the fact that when the Father declared both Jewish and Gentile church-age believers, you and I, justified through faith in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit placed us in union with Christ and under His federal headship and identified us with Jesus and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, of the right hand of the file, Father. That's why I can say that the figure of metonymy is clearly involved here. So, in other words, when the Father sent His Son, okay, Jesus had a plan, was given a, a, a task of redeeming us sinners out of the slave market of sin. Everyone in the human race, unlimited atonement. And he wanted. He also uh, would uh, reconcile us sinners to a holy God. We also, he also satisfied, propitiated the holy, the holiness of the Father, which demanded that sin and sinners be judged. He couldn't slip us sinners in the back door of heaven. He's not sentimental, sentimental like you know our fathers are. Um, normal fathers. And, uh, so, or like our grandmother or grandfather, you know, it's, uh, he had to, the sin issue, he, he has, his integrity is intact. It has to remain intact. So when Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross in our place for every member of the human race, past, present, and future, for every sin that every member of the human race has ever committed, past, present, and future, uh, when, when he suffered the wrath of God on the cross, that was, uh, that proved that, that that the father was satisfied with that, and he demonstrated that by raising his son from the dead, thus vindicating his son, and then seating him at his right hand as victor in the angelic conflict, and now as the head of the new humanity that's going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second his second advent, and uh, and so now uh, during the church age, which began in June of 33 AD, according to Acts chapter 2, among Jewish believers of Jesus. And they received the baptism of the Spirit, and the baptism of the Spirit identified us with Jesus in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session right here in the Father. This identification is mentioned in Romans 6. You see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Colossians 2 and 3. So it's a big part of what Paul taught. And in other places he talks about this. But uh, those are the big passages I just pointed out to you. And so uh, that means that God looks at us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seed with Jesus Christ, and not according to our sins and transgressions. Okay. Now, when we trusted in uh, Jesus as our Savior at justification, simultaneously the Holy Spirit did that identification and placed us in union with the Son. When we had faith in Jesus at justification, that appropriated or uh, it, it helped it appropriated the power of the Holy Spirit. That faith. Uh, which can move mountains, right? Well, he moved a pretty big mountain at our justification. Uh, The Holy Spirit appropriates all the benefits of Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session the right hand of the Father. And that's at our justification. So the Spirit's power was able to appropriate all those benefits of his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session the right hand of the Father for the church-age believer, each and every one of us. And that's at our justification when the Father declares justified. So this word, panuma, uh, the spirit, is modified by the nudis, dative nudis singular form of the noun hase translated one. Now, this, this particular use of the adjective parallels its usage in Ephesians 2.16, where we pointed out it modifies the noun soma, body, which again, in that context, the word body refers to the body of Jewish and Gentile Christians as being a unified, single human entity, despite the diversity between the two. So, the adjective, that, this, uh, this use of the adjective hase one, in Ephesians 2.18 2, emphasizes that it was by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit, namely the Holy Spirit, that Jewish and Gentile Christians form a single unified human entity. It also emphasizes that the spirit unifies both groups and specifically it emphasizes that the exercise of his power, omnipotence, is the unifying force between these two groups with each other and these two groups with God, so what's interesting, and it's tied to the purpose of this letter, remember Paul, I told you, wants the the uh, the unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities to be maintained through the uh, practice of the command to love one another. Now, that would that would keep this unity experientially going, uh, being experienced by these two groups, uh, and remember the Holy Spirit already, through the baptism of the Spirit, gave us the basis for this unity between the two groups and the two groups of God and also in a perfective sense at our at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, uh, we'll have unity in a perfective sense always for on into eternity. But in the meantime, we're in between our justification and the baptism of the Spirit and our resurrection, uh, uh, getting our resurrection bodies of the rapture. So we're in the period now where volition is important and that we have to practice the command to love one another. And to practice the command to love one another, you have to believe that God loved you at, his, at your justification. loves you now and will love you in the future through His Son and the Spirit. So, you know, that, when you, we love because He first loved us. Remember 1 John 4, 19? And uh, so, uh, we believe, you know, He, he we he, we love because He first loved us. So, in order to practice this command to love one another, we must have faith in what God, God, and God's love for us. Because if you don't have faith that God loves you as a believer, you're not going to practice this command to love one another. And that, so that's how you know that uh, people are walking in faith by, because of the practice of the command to love one another. In fact, Paul makes that clear. If you remember when we studied First Thessalonians, he was very concerned that, about their faith, their post-justification faith, and their love. But he mentions faith first because you can't practice the command to love one another if you don't trust in the fact that, and believe in the fact and have the conviction that, that God loves you okay, when you were his enemy. So we have to always remind ourselves of what God did for us in the past. So this word, penuma, Spirit, is the object of the preposition N, which functions here as a marker of means, indicating that the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit was the means by which both Jewish and Gentile Christians exist in the state of experiencing this access to the Father. So the Spirit, as I said before, his omnipotence, appropriated for the benefit of us church-age believers, the benefits of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father, when the Father declared us justified through faith in His one and only Son. Now, this expression that we see in Ephesians 2.18, which I translate by means of the omnipotence of the One Spirit, and it's translated in the Net Bible is in One Spirit. Okay, so that, that's very prepositional phrase, that same prepositional phrase that we see in Ephesians 2.18 is also found in 1 Corinthians 12.13 and Philippians 1.27. And 1 Corinthians 12.13, it's used in relation to the baptism of the Spirit. Look at Ephesians, first. Uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12.13, please. Ephesians, excuse me, not Ephesians, we were there, but let's go to First Corinthians, First Corinthians 12, 13. I get it on the board for you. For in one spirit, okay, and heni numati. In one spirit, that prepositional phrase that we saw in Ephesians 2, 18, there it is again. And it's used in relation to the baptism of the spirit. So it says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, we were all made a drink of the one spirit. So that passage is, is, is supporting my interpretation of... The figure of autonomy being used, in Ephesians two eighteen with this same prepositional phrase, where the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit is put, uh, for, uh, the Holy Spirit is put for our his, the exercise of His omnipotence at our justification, when through the baptism of the Spirit He identified us with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father. So let's go back to uh, well uh, we yeah we can go back to First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen, and as we come to the end of this uh, study of this verse, in Ephesians 2.18, the word for Father. You know, if you look at uh, my translation, it says in Ephesians 2.18, Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of Himself, Jesus Christ, each and every one of us is a corporate unit, namely both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the One Spirit to the presence of the Father. So, to the Father, in that passage, as it says in your Bibles, in Ephesians 2.18, it's uh, we see that the word for father, pater, it's the object of the preposition pro, uh, pros, which means to f- means face to face or in the presence of, and the reason why is because it functions as a mark of close personal association with the implication of personal intimacy with someone and of an interrelationship or uh, reciprocal relation, we could say. So, therefore, this prepositional phrase pros, tone, patera means to the presence of the father or in the presence of the father it indicates that both jewish and gentile christians you and i are experiencing access to the personal presence of the father through the intermediate personal agency of jesus christ and by means of the omnipotence of the holy spirit so this prepositional phrase is emphasizing that the intimate relationship both groups are experiencing with the father through the personal intimate agency of jesus christ and by means of the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. So, as I said in our last class, the greatest blessing that you ever received in life was a relationship, an eternal relationship, and a fellowship with the Father. You and I, at any time, 24 7, can go to the presence of the Father, and we're experiencing the presence of the Father when we're in fellowship with Him. When you sin, you haven't lost your eternal relationship with the Father, but you've lost your fellowship. And in other words, you've lost your experience of being in the presence of the Father through sin. So, when you That's why I say, emphasize, keep short accounts with God. As soon as you sin, confess it. Any mental, verbal, or overactive sin will cause you to lose fellowship with the Father and thus cause you not to experience the personal presence of of our Heavenly Father. And so that's very important. So again, you always have someone who's there for you. You can never say as a believer that nobody's here for me, okay? There are going to be times in your life, if you haven't experienced them already, I have, where there's members of the body of Christ that can nowhere be found, or if they are around, they can't identify with what you're dealing with, okay? For whatever reason, not because of anything sinister, but just that they don't care. It's just, some. there are some things that we just have to walk through alone with God. And there's some things that we can share with others, but there's some things that you just, yeah, it's just the way it is. And because God's trying to advance you spiritually. So, uh, so there's so it's very important so you always have somebody to talk to. If you're single or you're in a lonely or in a bad marriage or whatever or you don't think you have anybody as a friend, you know, you always have the Father. in fact, who would you want to have as your friend and mentor and somebody to talk to than him? <laughs> right? You know, a friend nobody's perfect in their friendship. Nobody's perfect in marriage. There's no perfect marriage. No such thing. We're all sinners. Saved by the grace of God. We're not, uh, you know, perfect. We make mistakes. We do stupid things. We say things to each other that we, that we regret. And so, there, you know, you, 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 you but, you, you know, God will never, ever let you down. He'll never betray you. He'll always be there as a, as, as, your heavenly father. You're, he's your father. How, I mean, my, you know, my father would do anything for us. He'd die for us. He'd do anything for us. My mother, too. And so how much more do you think our Heavenly Father has done? He's done more for us than we ever could dream of in the fact that He sent His Son, His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer His wrath on the cross, which required that Jesus had to be abandoned by the Father on the cross those last three hours of darkness, of supernatural darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, they weren't having fellowship with each other. That doesn't mean the Trinity was broken up or that the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ was corrupted. No, it just means the fellowship. Their eternal relationship was intact. It was their fellowship with each other. Was lost. That's how much. How much you think they valued that? Okay, this is what we're coming up to the Lord's Supper. This is what we need to remember this stuff, because it helps us to understand the great love He has for us. And by when we when we see that, it'll cause us to be more obedient to Him and and, and gratitude really, and love for what He did for us when we were His enemies. So Paul's vocabulary here, as we come to an end and go to our the Lord's Supper, Paul's vocabulary here in Ephesians two eighteen is similar to that of the vocabulary he employs in Romans 5, 1 and 2. My translation of those verses, therefore, since we've been justified by means of faith as a source, we always have peace with God through our Lord, who is Jesus, who is the Christ, through whom also we have as a permanent possession, access to this gracious benefit in which we forever stand. And in addition, we make it a habit to rejoice upon the confident expectation of sharing God's glory, being in a resurrection body, and decorated with rewards for faithful service. So in these verses, as we looked at, Paul employs the noun prosagoge, access, in relation to the reconciliation of the justified sinner with the Holy God, which is based upon the merits of the object of our faith at justification, namely Jesus Christ. And this reconciliation results in us, church-age believers, experiencing peace with God. And as we close... Do you notice something about Ephesians 2.18? Well, there's a triadic pattern. We saw a triadic pattern in Ephesians 1.3, and we see it again in Ephesians 2.18. This triadic pattern we studied in our, we we looked at uh, what that means in our uh, Trinity series, but uh, basically a triadic pattern means each member of the Trinity is being mentioned in a verse or a passage. So in Ephesians 2.18, we get all three members of the church of being mentioned. In fact, the Trinity is a major theme that appears in this epistle, as I pointed out in our introduction to this letter. As we also noted in our study of Ephesians 1:3, this verse contains a triadic pattern. the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all mentioned. and in fact, as we noted in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, that passage, the prologue of the letter, contains a triadic pattern. We pointed out that in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6, uh, that the father's work in electing us, church age believers in eternity past, while the work of the Son is mentioned in Ephesians 1, 7 through 12 and redeeming us at the cross in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, describes the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing us at the Father as the Father's possession at our justification. As we'll see in the future in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul exhorts the Gentile Christian community in the Roman province of Asia to, to unity by reminding them that there is one Spirit, one Lord and one Father, or in other words, God is a unity of three persons. And so as members of their family, we, us church-age believers, should be united through obedience to the command of love one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, Paul commends, uh, commands the Gentile Christian community in the Roman province of Asia to be totally and completely influenced by means of the Spirit, and this will result in them uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in their hearts to the Lord, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. And that's what we should do on a, on a daily basis. And we should do that today as we uh, wrap up our study of Ephesians 2.18. So now we're going to do, as we do the first Saturday of each month, we're going to segue now. We've ended our lesson. Now we're going to go and observe the Lord's Supper. So while I'm getting strapping my guitar on to sing us a song with relation to that, uh, I want you to go to f- uh, First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. First Corinthians 11:23. So let me, um, I'll uh, change the screen and then put a, the mic on mute and just get, strap my guitar on. I'll be right back to sing us a song to uh, set up the Lord's Supper.
1: Yes, I'm so in love with you, Jesus. I think of be all night and day. Yes, I'm in love with you, Jesus. Your cross has won. Save i'm so in love with you jesus i think of you all night and day yes i'm so in love with you jesus for wiping my sin. I think be woke, night and day. Yes, I think I'll be woe and die. Yes, I think I'll be woe.
0: All right, we come now to the Lord's table, and I have uh, bread and juice in front of me, so you should have that with you as well. And we're gonna bring into remembrance our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice on the cross for us at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And uh, so uh, you should be at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. So as we come to approach the Lord's table, remember that it was uh, basically an extension of the, uh, the Passover, which brought into remembrance uh, the great deliverance the Lord provided them uh, from fa- enslavement to sin, uh, f- enslavement to Pharaoh in uh, Egypt, and uh, so. But now, Jesus, who is uh, often in Matthew, is considered as the 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 second Moses, really, and the greatest one, uh, because of uh, he's the great deliverer, and he delivered us from something much greater than uh, from uh, bondage to slavery and uh, and and some nation or uh, p- p- before some leader. in world uh, world history. Uh, He's delivered us from sin and Satan and his cosmic system, enslavement to those things. He also delivered us from eternal condemnation with his great sacrifice. Uh, He uh, also delivered us from our personal sins. Uh, We also, uh, in physical and spiritual death and condemnation from the law. So he did that all for us at Calvary. So uh, we uh, see that the Lord Jesus Christ, when we talk about the bread there, that's what the Jews were told to make the bread unleavened. You know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover were right on right with each other. And Jesus, Paul says in First Corinthians five seven, is our our Passover. The Passover Lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ, and so it was a shadow. Jesus, is the, Jesus, is the reality. He's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. So that bread that you have was supposed to be unleavened, and the reason why, because leaven many times is, is a sign of evil. But Jesus didn't have the presence of evil in him because he didn't have a, a sin nature like you and I do as a result of being, a, being passed down to us from our parents. And so the sin nature gets passed down through copulation and and, uh, and that's where the sin nature perpetuates itself. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit impregnated pregnant Mary, as it says it in uh, Luke chapter one, verse 37, also you see uh, Hebrews 10, five through seven, where a body you prepare for me, Jesus said, and, and before he came into the world, and uh, that body was uh, the product of uh, the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary, not Joseph impregnating Mary. And that meant that Jesus doesn't, didn't have a, a sin nature like you and I. That's why the sin nature is the reason why we go back to the dust of the ground, our, our biological life. That's why we need a resurrection body, okay? So Jesus, in his person, he is both undiminished deity and true sinless humanity in one person forever. Uh, he is different from the Father and the Spirit in that he became a human being. And he is uh, just like you and I as a human being, except he doesn't have sin. And he's God in the flesh. So he's the what we call in theology the unique theanthropic person of creation. And so that's important because what he did on the cross and suffering the wrath of God in our, in, our, in our place would be meaningless if he wasn't who he was, the incarnate son of God. So we couldn't keep God's law. We were condemned by the law because we couldn't keep it perfectly, which the law required, if you wanted to have an eternal relationship and a fellowship with the triune God. So God, his son, was able to do what we couldn't do, live a life of perfect obedience. That's very important, because if he didn't do that, and he wasn't God, uh, that could never be taken place, and so therefore we would, we would be still dead in our sins and transgressions. So when he, when he was on, uh, so then the juice speaks of his, the blood of Christ, which is a representative analogy relating the animal sacrifices to what Jesus sacrificed on the cross and his spiritual and physical death. When I say spiritual death, that means when he was abandoned by the father, he was losing fellowship with his father. And that is a a source of death. Paul even talks about this in Romans eight. For the believer, we can't, we don't have real spiritual death where, you know, we're, but we do can experience temporal spiritual death. In other words, when we lose fellowship with God, there's a, that's a sort of death is what Paul describes it. Okay. So Jesus, he was abandoned by his heavenly Father, and he was offering himself up to the eternal spirit, but he was abandoned by his heavenly Father, so the Father and the Son had a transaction there. So he had to suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. So when he did that, he redeemed us out of the crucifixion, and that, that, that was part of his suffering the wrath of God. Being abandoned by the Father was part of the suffering the wrath of God. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was, that was the, the cup of wrath. He was, was it, uh, pleading with the Father that, that uh, he, he could avoid it, if if possible, but not his will, but what the father wanted, and that's that's important because it wasn't that the physical suffering was the torture of the crucifixion was horrible, and he had two scourgings, but physical death, but which he did of his own volition, the physical death, but the spiritual death meant he had to be abandoned by his father. That's what he was praying for in the Garden of the Gethsemane, and that's what was terrifying him, because he's always had eternal fellowship with his heavenly father. And I can't stress this enough, just because he lost fellowship with his Heavenly Father didn't mean the Trinity was upset in any way. There's an eternal relationship that's inextricable, uh, that uh, it can can never be broken. It's indivisible between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's the fellowship that was disrupted. And that can only happen if the Son became a human being. So, the Jew speaks of that blood of Christ, or in other words, his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross, which redeemed us sinners out of the slave market of sin, which we we're all born physically alive yet spiritually dead, reconciled us sinners to a holy God, and it also propitiated, satisfied the Father's holiness, which demanded that sin and sinners be judged. And why did God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do this for us when we were their enemies? Is because they love us. And that love is greater than human love, any type of human love, which is a gift love for your country, love for your parents, love for your your kids, your grandchildren, um, it's, uh, your love for your spouse. Uh, this is a greater love because God loved us when we were very, totally obnoxious in his enemies. Okay? That's the type of love you need to have in your marriage when you're dealing with your husband and your wife, okay? So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. It's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us partake of the bread in remembrance of our Lord. Then it says in verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup, Is the new covenant in my blood? Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's partake of the cup in remembrance of our Lord's death. Paul then says in verse twenty-six: For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for this observance of your uh, the, the, the sacrifice of your Son and observing this great sacrifice that was which was. His love for us drove, and your love for us and the Spirit's love for us drove us, drove him to go to the cross for us to save our sinners from your wrath. We just pray that this, uh, the lesson today and also the observance of the Lord's Supper and the music and all that took place would uh, be a blessing to your people, that would minister to your people and uh, would be a source of uh, spiritual nourishment for them as they continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son Jesus Christ. So I just thank you for everyone that was here today, whether it's or a later date with the recordings, or whoever takes uh, watches or listens to these classes. I just pray it would be a great blessing to them with the, this uh, this uh, session today. So Father, we pray for this in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. All right, thank you, everyone. I'll pick. We'll see. We'll pick this up, Lord willing, next uh, Tuesday as we move on in Ephesians chapter two by starting. Uh, uh, to uh, look at Ephesians 2.19. will be two hours into Ephesians 2.19 before we move on to verse 20. So that's what we'll be looking at on Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. So thank you for joining us. Uh, see you later. Bye.